I've been reading a lot about data pipelines. What's so special about data pipelines? I'm not sure there's anything particularly special about data pipelines, but there's a lot of special tooling around data pipelines. And there's a lot of bad, bad tooling around data pipelines or less than optimal tooling. So the the whole thing started in two different places, which is kind of odd, but that's also a bit how my interests and how my professional life tends to work. It's like I get interested in one thing and I get a kind of commercial incentive to dig into another thing. And suddenly I'm building opinions and converging on on something bigger. In this case, when I was at Ödedev, I ran into Matt Topol, a man whose job it is to work on the open source project, Apache Arrow. He maintains a bunch of the bindings, like the Go libraries and yeah, a bunch of bunch of things. He does a number of different things. And he, he was one of the speakers, uh, as was I. So we ended up at a shared dinner and he ended up talking a bunch about Apache Arrow. I actually kind of wanted to not talk about Apache Arrow that much, but I didn't know it at the time, but it's actually rather interesting. <laughs> uh, so, so initially I was skeptical, I'll say, but he, he is knowledgeable and, uh, very, very enthusiastic. So, uh, he got me eventually. And from the other direction, I have this kind of unusual client that wanted me to do some exploratory work towards building a product that futzes around with AI and data. And if you want to do things with data and AI, you need to refine data and you need to try to, to clarify AI, uh, machine learning and large language models, mostly, uh, but also some like vector search and stuff. I've been talking a little bit about this recently. It's like vector search and knowledge graphs and knowledge bases, uh, that kind of thing. And when you want to deal with that stuff, you end up wanting to pipeline data or to clarify, like a data pipeline is just multiple steps of processing data. And even if you put all of your steps in like one bucket, that kind of turns it into a pipeline that just doesn't save any in-between states or doesn't have, is just a monolithic pipeline. I guess it's a single pipe. So uh, it's just transformations of data. That's what a data pipeline is. So it could be just a program that you write the same way you write anything else. But more typically, people use other tools. Have you used any data pipeline or data engineering style tools that you that you feel like, what tools do you associate with data? I don't know, but they are painful. <laughs> kind of. I think what I've been using is SQL. And sure. Because, because I inherited a data pipeline that takes all kinds of data and puts it in BigQuery and then does more things with it in BigQuery until reports that are sent over Slack falls out because that was needed at the time or because that was the style at the time. Um, I think the data pipeline I prefer, but that's just because I like small cursed things, is a command line and lots of pipes and sed and awk and 
all that good stuff. I think JQ could be very useful here too. But that's not, it's probably faster than most of the pipelines out there, but it's not very pipeline-y or very, it doesn't feel like it should be a solution <laughs> to this problem. Well, considering like the, I know there's a blog post about like replacing, I think it was Hadoop or something, like one of these big batch, uh, distributed batch systems with just bash and how much faster it is and so on. That's hilarious. Yeah. We need to find it. Uh, yeah, that's, well, I, I figure you'd read it probably, but <laughs> a long time ago. But there's also the fact that at a certain point of scale, the bash thing absolutely will not do the job because you can't scale it horizontally. Um, you need it on multiple hosts and suddenly you have all the problems Hadoop was made to solve. So then we have MapReduce using bash. <laughs> bash reduce, yes. Bash reduce. Uh, yeah. But I actually, I yeah, think a bash yeah. pipeline is a good mental model for the fundamental structure of a data pipeline because like unix pipes are make up like if you keep piping things in unix you make up a directed acyclic graph as far as i know yeah or at least a line <laughs> well you can al always yeah maybe it's harder to do uh lots of fork like branching but you can at least um, kind of materialize in between states by using T. That's true. But it gets tricky. Uh, it gets hard to manage. And uh, if you need to switch out something that's in between your awk and your JQ, you you're, might be in trouble. And actually, JQ is its funny that you mentioned JQ because it's incredibly common to sling JSON data across data pipelines. Which is, of course, the worst thing that you can sling anywhere, probably, for efficiency. It's very nice for people to look at occasionally, unless it's minified. But it's not very efficient. And I think that's been one of the attractive nuisances of my dive into data pipelines. Like, trying to find an optimal one or something. Because if you look at the current tooling, it's all like... Well, the fast tools are mostly Java. And they are mostly fast-ish. And the user or developer or data person facing ends are either web UIs or Python, or bo usually both. And Python is not very fast, and Python is not faster if you put it inside of Java, almost regardless of how you do it. <laughs> is Python called from Java? Do they use it as a scripting language, or what's the idea? So there, there's a bunch of different things going on but because it's not one tool it's like oh you want um, a combo of java and python let's see you can do that in apache beam you can do it in apache spark you i think you can do it in apache the one flink um uh, i bet you could do it in pulsar but that's mostly a kafkaesque thing um also an apache project by the way and then there's uh, just about infinity others. Uh, one big project that keeps showing up is Airbyte, which is uh, uh, source available, uh, business source licensed thing, which has a bunch of connectors for grabbing data from one system 
treating it as some kind of intermediary format and then shoving it to another system, which is an incredibly helpful thing to have when it has like 300 connectors or something. So then you can click ops that thing. You go in and it's like, I want to pull from our GitHub account and I want to push things. Uh, I want to push issues from our GitHub account into a S3 bucket. <laughs> so Airbyte is basically the pipe operator in Bash with a GUI. No, it's a cron job. Oh. Uh, well, it's a cron job plus uh, plus not the pipe operator so much. It's I. You end up with either Java or Python in between, and yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Overall, uh, like the the integrations are useful. The UI is useful. The tool make like conceptually, the tool makes me kind of sad. Uh, it's it's a pragmatic tool. I don't. I won't bother anyone for using it. And there's a competitor called Fivetran, which I don't believe is open at all. Is it the clicking part that makes you sad, or what's the? Is it just the concept? Are they on? So I think you can DevOps it entirely and kind of not click ops it, but I'm not a hundred percent certain on that because um, I haven't used it very much yet. But then people also use something called Airflow, which is uh, directed a cyclic graph buildy tool. It's like build up your workflows. So tell other things what to do, when to do them, how to sort of stage them and use that to orchestrate pieces of work that need to be done. So you might use that to drive Airbyte and tell it what to do rather than have Airbyte do it because you might want to be tying something to like, oh, Airbyte, grab something here, put it here. Okay, now we want to transform that like if you if you get into data pipelines you'll run into etl extract transform and load or the reverse elt or not the reverse but uh, a, a remix of it uh, which is elt extract load transform uh, this is a horribly named uh, abbreviation extract means grab something from other system uh, which is outside the data pipeline Load means load into our system, our storage, our data set, I guess. And transform means change it. And then you tend to iterate on the L and the T a fair bit. You, that tends to be a repeated process. But yeah. So uh, you get it, lit, 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 lit. Yeah, something, something like that. And it's like, uh, so there's two also fundamentally different types of pipelines that tend to show up. You've read uh, Designing Data Intensive Applications by Martin Kleppman, right? Yes. That book covers MapReduce, and then it goes through, like, okay, uh, this works for batch work, generally offline, but if you want something faster, something more current, something lower latency, uh, more lively, then you might do stream processing. And I think he mentions Apache Spark as one of the like, like current contenders because that was what the situation was when the book was new. Now there are a ton of different variants. And if you look at, for example, like Spark really does micro-batching more or less. But if you look at Apache 
Beam, I think, uh, as well as Flink and a few others, they do actually streaming in the sense of like they process things one one after another, uh, like batch size one, essentially. But they can also, because a stream can become a batch job if you like, but you can't turn a batch job into a low latency stream. So a stream is just kind of a nicer abstraction, but they are more complex to work with and more annoying and potentially more costly in terms of performance. But you might build a pipeline entirely for for batch-oriented workloads. Like you need reports or you need some data to feed your ML model, but none of it is more urgent than a day or an hour or whatever. But if you want to stream things kind of live to a bunch of systems, then you're looking at stream processing and where latency is sensitive or latency needs to be known and fairly low. Then you're dealing with stream processing, which is a little bit harder. So... And then you get into like, oh, what do you want to save from your data pipeline? Like if you did a stream processing pipeline, you it might actually be entirely ephemeral. You might not save anything, which is, I think, unusual. <laughs> I don't think many people do that. But um, arguably you could. And you, because you want to keep low latency anytime you kind of wait for a committed write, that's a, that's a costly operation. A bunch of fun trade-offs there. It's like, how much do you want to save as you're working on things? How many intermediate representations are worth saving? How do you do that? And that that's kind of when you get into data lakes and data warehouses, where data lakes are kind of unstructured, less structured data. Usually, when you pull something from the original source, if you're following a data lake concept, you just shove the raw data into like a staging part of the data lake without actually like parsing it or anything. It's like you'd shove raw JSON or whatever you get from the system. And then a later step would do processing on that. While if you're not doing a data lake and just doing a data warehouse, you'd be processing the information a bit before you save it at all. And that's where you get into ELT versus ETL, like the the order of operations, essentially. That's very much life O'Brien. Yeah. You know, like where the people's front of Judea <laughs> versus where the Judea right. people's front. Yeah. So, yeah. Good TLA, though. Elt and Etl. Um, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure they're good. <laughs> they're not very uh, descriptive, or maybe they are. I'm, I'm having a big problem with the load one. Yeah, it's like but, loading into your system. I don't. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's something about it that makes me. Yeah, I I don't mind extract and I don't mind transform. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think my beef is also with load. Yeah, it's like, do you load into or out of? Because exactly. Yeah. All right. Hmm. Yeah. So while I was kind of digging into this stuff, I had in the back of my mind. Because I needed to get familiar with this stack, and I've actually one of my recruitment clients works in this space as well, and they uh, they help companies that want to set up kind of this modern, kind of normal um, data pipeline stack. So they use Airbyte, Airflow, DBT, which is a SQL to SQL batch work thingy, which is also Python, uh, but is not oh. No, you don't really write Python. What you do in DBT, 
Do you want to guess what DBT does? The the concept is SQL to SQL. SQL to SQL. Then the so you can I suppose you connect to a logical replication thing on the source, and then it's transformed somehow and put into the target. Good guess. More interesting than it is. Oh no! So it reads from one. SQL capable source and puts it into another SQL capable source or the same one. So uh, what this could be we have a Postgres and we want to put it into a BigQuery or we want yep. to grab it from our BigQuery and create another view of the data in our BigQuery or a new table uh, that materializes like a report in our BigQuery. But essentially it does slurping from one SQL-capable data source to uh, SQL-capable recipient. And it does this by massive YAML configs. Oh, no. And SQL with Jinja templates. Oh, no. Apparently, it's kind of good. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I struggle <laughs> with this one. Yeah, I need, I need to, to be convinced. I, I can see how it's very practical to be able to write a SQL, essentially a select statement that says, this is the new table I want. Huh. And just tell tell the schedule, like using Airflow, I guess, as a scheduler, just tell it, run that thing. <laughs> Make oh. it happen. But it's weird. I th- I'm not sure I like mm. it. This, this makes it very clear to me that I'm not a data engineer because that whole thing feels very much like the wrong solution to a problem. Well, it's a general solution to a bunch of problems. Yeah, I don't like any of them. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like the problems and you don't like the solution. Exactly. It's like me and Java and C Sharp. I, I, no. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, I'm not super fond of what I've seen of this kind of the modern data stack. Or actually, if, yeah. if I've understood the podcasts and the articles correctly, the modern data stacks means that you pay for hosted variants of all of these and your storage is, what's it called? Snowflake, which is some kind of data warehousey thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Lovely. But, but it also talks SQL, I'm sure. It does yeah. everything. So, so as a variant on moving data from one thing to another, we had a batch job running once a night that I th- don't remember if this one was written in Scala or JavaScript. Not too important, except that nobody knows Scala. So, well, it ran once a night. It downloaded the whole production database and put it into BigQuery. Uh, before it put it into BigQuery, it nuked the BigQuery database. So if something went wrong, we simply didn't have any raw data. Very practical. Yeah, it was amazing. And I think it was, you know, one of those solutions you create when there's not very much data so it doesn't matter what you do it was one of those Mm. and then we changed databases and thus the old tool didn't work anymore uh, which was kind of good so we started to use google's some kind of pipeline thing uh, that lets you create a publication in Postgres Mm. uh, that puts logical replication stuff 
into it and then it's uh, piped into a big query database and this happens in the softest softest of real time but it's still so much more often than what we had up until now and that just feels kind of elegant maybe it's a bit it's big on the e part and the l part but it doesn't really do any transformation yeah i suppose we could do transformation no i don't think we could do that so then we would have the raw data in bigquery and could work yeah bigquery i think is generally billed as a data warehouse because it's fairly structured data but some would probably use it as a lake as well yeah well our our data is kind of lakey yeah key value stores ftv or for the win yeah so yeah and i think like the dbt thing that that's definitely for batch work i don't think it makes a lot of sense for stream processing and for me the interest more interesting problem is definitely stream processing partially because i think it's a good fit for elixir because low latency and all that and usually if you're doing stream processing you want it distributed across multiple nodes and stuff so you can keep a decent throughput but you also need to coordinate things so that uh, you don't mm, process things in in triplicate and all that so it's suddenly like a distributed systems problem it's like okay you get some data in then you fan it out and you need to do things with it and produce some aggregates and maybe you have some uh, probably like window aggregates because with streams, you, they never end. <laughs> they don't have a beginning and an end. So you can't really like sum the entire stream, but you can sum a window of the stream. And there, there's a lot of that uh, interesting stuff happening. And there are a few tools in like Elixir that does some of this. So Broadway is one that people will, will bring up. Oban is good for just like... Uh, processing multiple steps and building a workflow like there's there's tools for that in the paid version of open uh, which seems really nice and especially if you need kind of that persistence and insight into what has been happening uh, like open uses postgres for for all the worker metadata and that's uh, that has some upsides i like the Broadway approach pretty well, but Broadway is also kind of batch-oriented. It could do stream processing by just going to a batch size of one, essentially. And the same with Flow. Both of these are things that Dashbit, uh, the company that uh, Jose Valim started after uh, after Platform Tech was uh, acquired, uh, they built Flow and Broadway. And both of them are kind of pipeline Build the tools uh, that do things kind of differently. So flow is a lot about like modeling a multi-step flow with partitioning and like parallelizing in that way. While Broadway is essentially working from the assumption that you grab the thing off of like a queue or from a system, you do processing to it in decently sized batches, and then you pass it to a new system. And then you demand more work. So very transforming. Yeah, essentially. While uh, And flow is also very transforming, but you can model an entire directed acyclic graph in like a, f- a couple of statements of flow, while um, nice. Broadway would be 
kind of assumes that there is an intermediary where you drop things, where where you get the work from, essentially. Yeah. It just struck me an, another cursed command line DAG thing that you could probably use for data engineering in the small scale. Make files. Yeah, probably. Yeah, they are... They are uh, How do they deal with running infinitely? Uh, well, I have some make files that do. They are they are quite good at it. <laughs> no, I have no idea. Well, first you need a big Rust project. Yes. <laughs> Compile Firefox. No, but may, actually, this this kind of brings me to to where I've ended up. So digging more in into like data pipelines and the stuff that Matt Topol talked about with regards to Arrow. So the point of Arrow is was initially to define an in-memory format that could be used for data processing and transformation because like one of the involved creators was the person who invented Pandas, which is a Python data library. Yeah, it's said to be APL about in Python. Okay. Yeah, uh, it was very popular and has been very popular. Uh, and he had some reservations about how he'd ended up doing things with data frames and stuff. Mm-hmm. I f- don't know if they've worked their way out of that corner with Arrow or if Pandas has limitations in that regard. But essentially, to make things efficient, of course, in Python, you write everything in C++. Yep. Or Rust nowadays. Yeah, or Rust. And uh, Arrow is intended to be a format that, regardless if you're using like Pandas or NumPy or SciPy or uh, suddenly need to shift over into C++ or Rust or Go, you should be able to use the same in-memory representation. And assuming that your language allows and assuming that you're willing to do the work, you should even be able to pass that memory around to achieve zero copy which is a heck of a difference from slinging JSON around. Oh, yes. And this is a columnar format, so it is optimized for calculations. It is also optimized for CPUs and GPUs, so that when you need to kind of marshal your data and shove it into one of these devices, it is already in a good layout. A known, specific, uh, structured that is easy to take advantage of, like vectorized. Does array of structs versus struct of arrays say something to you? Uh, yes, I guess this would be a struct of arrays more type of deal. Cool. Because an array of structs strikes me as rows, uh, while um, yep, struct of arrays. Uh, and... An array of structs is not very efficient when it comes to caching and, uh, or not caching as in caching. Cache lines and CPU caching, yes. Yes. L1, L2, and so on. Yeah. And Arrow tries to, tries to address this and they, they've built like a very n- cool ecosystem from this basic idea. So beyond being an in-memory format, it is also a f- fully formed wire format. So you can pass it over the network in the same shape without copying you can well you pass it on you essentially remove all the 
serialization and deserialization. And if you want, you can also mmap it and like use it as a file format. Uh, there are a few ways to use it as a file format. It is also, I think, fairly efficient to go from Parquet, which is a popular columnar file format, to Arrow because they are not so far from each other. So, And because they want this future where no unnecessary copies are made, they built uh, an RPC format and some SQL formats or some SQL protocols for trying to ensure that you can have arrow for as large a stretch as possible of your processing. And this is very early days still in terms of like the data pipeline world in general. This is why like th- this sounds sound to me. It's like we have a standard format that we can use essentially everywhere. It's not optimal for like row-oriented data. But also, row-oriented data is just not optimal, and that's not where you usually spend a ton of your time because you usually spend your time doing the number crunching. Like if you're you have an analytical workload, either you're spending all your time parsing JSON or you're spending all your time doing calculations, essentially. So optimizing for something that removes the serialization deserialization steps and like parsing and encoding and just leaning kind of on this uh, this columnar format that means you have a standard that just makes everything pluggable and when you receive a bit of arrow you also receive the schema which is helpful this seems very nice yeah and the the rpc thing like arrow flight uh, is what it's called it's like a grpc thing i didn't love um I haven't loved my experience like digging into gRPC, but partially that's because I think it's a kind of poor fit for Elixir. So poking around the gRPC there was annoying and it was all right in under Python. And overall, like gRPC gives good things because HTTP2 has multidirectional streaming, like both client and server can stream uh, data to each other, which enables a bunch of cool things, among others, uh, to use it for this type of of streaming. So I saw that they actually support the U- doing it over Unix domain socket because gRPC supports that, which would make it barely a copy. <laughs> so if you're on the same host, you could actually kind of... I, th- I think it would still be a copy, but uh, it would be very, very low latency. But Overall, it just means that if you have multiple, like multiple stages of processing, whether those are, whether it's a queue, like you hand things off to a queue for the next step to pick it up, or if it's actually just kind of a back pressured line of workers uh, that are on different machines, uh, they could talk to each other over this common protocol with kind of well defined shapes and they would pass out arrow over the network they would receive arrow they would process arrow and as during the processing that's the only place transformation would happen and thus are the only place like copies need to happen essentially or changes writing to memory needs to happen 
and then you pass it forward. And um, there's also uh, what they built out at ADBC, which is the Arrow database connector thingy, which allows you to query SQL databases and as soon as possible. So for, for databases that in some way support Arrow, which I think is just DuckDB at this point, uh, you can get Arrow directly from the database. I think there is a Postgres extension in the works that might help as well. But for now, it's mostly drivers that talk to the SQL database, get the data from SQL, turn it into Arrow as soon as possible and as efficiently as possible, and then pass it on to you as Arrow, which means you can treat your database the normal way, but you get Arrow which also means that you can do the kind of DBT thing for any supported database, which is just like, pull the data set, do some things to it, shove it back, all in arrow. Nice. Yeah. Um, there's also a cool project called Data Fusion, which is like a query execution engine. So that's actually not very distributed. That's a local thing. Well, what it is is a, an execution, like a SQL-oriented execution engine written in Rust uh, that uses Arrow as its internal memory format. So if you shove Arrow at it, that's kind of effect, kind of efficient. But it can also take like a, just a SQL query and it can take, um, what is it called? Substrate uh, query plans. And this is also like Arrow project stuff. They're trying to build an ecosystem where it's like, hmm, SQL seems a bit inefficient. Can we have a shared query planner format can we have a standard for that and then they built one but mostly like the arrow format i think is the is the big win uh there are more wins to be had but uh, overall it's like all this python processing and all this gpu processing and all of that stuff if that can lean on a single format and it's not like oh yes read all this json i know there's been like as i've been reading about this People have said like, yeah, we struggle to fully utilize our GPUs because we can't get data to them fast enough, which means like it's just inefficiency. And if you look at like if I look at the current tools, everything just feels like there's a lot of inefficiencies. Of course, I'd want to switch out half of it for Elixir, but I've I realize like Elixir is not the ideal fit for this because you're passing what you want to be doing is passing around pointers to memory. This is not Elixir's strong suit. No, Elixir is better at copying areas of memory many, many, many times. Yeah. And then removing them in uh, parallel. Yeah. So I've, I've had to be kind of humble uh, compared to what I prefer to be when it comes to what where I would put Elixir in this mix, essentially. So I've been thinking about building data pipeline tooling because, of course, I want to build tooling rather than building data pipelines because that's more fun. And it's it's the more interesting problem uh, in this case because I don't actually have very interesting data to shovel around at the moment. But what I think you could do is essentially build a tool that lets you make it or makes it very easy for you to build your processing steps so that they take arrow and they produce arrow and you wrap those up like uh, 
if they are remotely hosted, you wrap them up in Aeroflight. And if they're entirely local, maybe you can smack them together and just have them return to each other, essentially. But fundamentally, just make sure that they all speak the same streams of Arrow record batches and like end to end, an end to end Arrow data system is, is something that's very tempting to me because it would be essentially zero copy. Like you, you would start to approach what the like high frequency trading and high performance compute people are doing, but they do it in C because they have to, like, they have to control all the factors. And uh, it's the only current way except for now arrow to to kind of get this result and if you want any traction with the data product people have to be able to write their their pipeline steps in python and python uh is well supported by arrow uh so that's doable where i think elixir kind of fits in for me uh is that if i'm building out a product like this there would have to be some kind of orchestrate thing like something to build your dags in your processing flows and something to orchestrate and manage that and show a ui for like what is going on and keeping track of oh this this stage over there is is breaking and yada 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 and i think elixir would do a very good job there Uh, it could also do a very decent job with being a processing step uh, someone just needs to implement Arrow Flight, which is not available currently. But we do have a bunch of Arrow library tooling already. So there's a Rust library called Polars. Elixir has a library that is kind of a high-level, nice binding on top of that, which is called Explorer, which is used in all the machine learning Elixir stuff when you need to poke about with data. Like, oh, I want to read this CSV file, and then I want to pull some rows from it. I want to ask questions of it. And that already uses Polars, which uses Arrow. So uh, that's a start. And essentially, you'd need to repeat some of what that work was, but for Arrow Flight, if you want to integrate Elixir with this stuff. But you lose some stuff when you're wrangling data that you shouldn't copy in Elixir. Like you can build some nice pipelines. The syntax will still be nicer than what I got in Python. Uh, but because you can do pipe, 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 pipe uh, and get your stuff done. But you can't do like pattern matching and stuff without starting to cause performance uh, problems. It's the trade-off of the, of the airline virtual machine. At least we have NIFs that, so that we can do this. But uh, yeah, but yeah. Zero copy data pipelines. That's that's where m- my brain has gone recently. Sounds like the future. Yes, the future. Yeah. Uh, if you want to read about the sort of idea, uh, this company that uh, that Matt Topol works at, Voltron Data, like they're an unusual startup. They are a startup uh, that is focusing on kind of building out these standards. And trying to establish these standards for data pipelines. I think they do they do consulting on Arrow-related projects, and then they've also built, been building product. And they shipped uh, some kind of proprietary data pipeline-y thing uh, recently in collaboration with P- HP, I think. But they've written up 
they call the composable codex, which I think is a, a pretty decent read so far, which kind of makes the argument for like, okay, why why is this important? Why do we need this? What do standards have to do with anything? Why are standards important? Why do you want things to be composable? Yeah, but they, they've gotten me a bit hooked because like the the tools that are there in the data space right now does the thing, but there's nothing I see which is like, we do this very, very quickly. We do this very, very efficiently. It's like, no, well, we're using a standardized format called JSON. <laughs> like, yeah, sure. Yes, it's practical that everything is JSON. It's also dumb. It's like kind of bad, actually. Yeah, the the good part is that it's kind of readable on a good day. Yeah. But it's not as sleek and cool as the Arrow format. One nice thing about how how the Arrow format works when you're working with it, I, I saw this in Explorer, the Elixir thing, and I saw this in PyArrow. Like if you print an Arrow dataset, it will use a kind of sampling method to pull... Uh, the lower end of number ranges, the higher end, it will pull samples, essentially, of, of like, oh, here are a few of the title fields, and here are a few description fields, here are a few IDs, here are a few timestamps, and then dot, 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 <laughs> and then a few more samples. But they will not show, like, try to print the whole data set because it is a format intended for you to pull tens of thousands of uh, rows of data uh, with massive columns. So, yeah, pretty nice representation uh, still. Nice. I gotta take a look at this. It's a dangerous hole, but it's a pretty good one. Yeah. If you're unlucky, you become a data engineer. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, so far, I don't have any experience doing production work with this. So, that might be a hindrance. We'll see. We'll find out. Yeah. I want to know what happens when, when the rubber meets the road and all the other good metaphors. Yeah. Yeah, I'm also curious. Maybe it's a terrible idea. Maybe it's all bad. Actually, I think yeah. like ADBC and data fusion could be could be pretty good to replace DBT uh, and just make something that's much more efficient. And of course, instead of SQL and Jinja, we could do SQL and uh, E. EEX templates, I guess. Eh? Eh? Yeah. I'm I'm mildly skeptical, but sure. Yeah. Uh yeah. So at least I've been reconnecting with my Python roots and it's a mixed bag generally. Yeah. I really miss piping. <laughs> yes. So many intermediate values. God. Yes. 